scripture lesson tonight comes from the Old Testament, the Hebrew scriptures, from Numbers chapter 11, 4 through 6. And just imagine folks who had been enslaved for 400 years. They are free, and this is how they say thank you. Let's take a look. The rabble among them had a strong craving, and the Israelites also wept again and said, If only we had meat to eat! We remember the fish we used to eat in Egypt for nothing, the cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, and the garlic. But now our strength is dried up, and there is nothing at all but this manna to look at. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. You may be seated. Beware buyer's remorse. Beware buyer's remorse. I know so many folks that I have gotten on my knees and prayed with them for this relationship or this job or this thing to happen only to pray with them again a year later. Oh, Lord, what am I going to do with this relationship and this job and this thing that we prayed together about not too long ago? If you have your sermon notes, I invite you to take them out. Buyer's remorse is something that we all are familiar with. It happens to all of us even when we walk through God's doors. As a way of introduction, I want to remind us that God's open doors are not so much about what God wants to do through me as what God wants to do in me. So oftentimes we get locked up about, oh, what are we supposed to do? Does God want me to do that or this through me? When really what God's most concerned about is the person that you're becoming. Are you looking more and more like his son, Jesus Christ? You see, an open door is an opportunity provided by God for you to bless others. An open door that God opens, it's opened by God for you to bless others. Will you say that with me? An open door is an opportunity to do what? It's by God for you to bless others. Absolutely. Absolutely. So when we come to a door, friends, when the Lord opens a door, go. Go. Absolutely go through the door. We're not going to be in charge of the doors that are presented to us through our lives. Uh, We may not be able to force a a closed door open. We're not in charge of what's behind the door. But when a door is open, friends, we get to choose how we respond. And sometimes it's what you do after the door open that makes all the difference. You see, the biggest determinant of how things go is whether I throw myself into this new open door season with great enthusiasm and prayer and hope and energy. That makes the difference. At the same time, if I stew over what might have been, then I begin to rob myself of the very energy and spirit that I will need to get through the door. I may accidentally rob myself of precisely the spiritual assets that I need to find life with God right here and right now. Often what matters most is not the decision I make, but how I throw myself into executing it well. It's better to go through the wrong door with your best self than the best door with your wrong self. Will you say that with me? It's better to go through the wrong door with your best self than the best door with your wrong self. It's absolutely true. Sometimes the way in which I go through the door matters more than which door I actually go through. Attitude makes a big, big difference in life. So if you're going through an open door, don't limp across it. Oh, I think the Lord wants me to help in the children's department. Oh, go be excited. Bless the kids. You see, there are things in life that when you go, you better go. You know, have you ever been caught in a screen door with a really, you know, tight hinge? I mean, if it's time to go, you got to go. 
Our staff went to Houston this week to learn from some of the largest churches in our denomination. It was a great time, um, but our flight was delayed and then delayed again and then delayed some more because of weather. We all happened to land like 10 planes at once, and there were thousands of bags everywhere. And so we, we needed a really good attitude. So then we went to go get the car so that we could drive up um, to the woodlands where this was being held. And as we were about to leave, it was dark. We were tired. It was about 2 in the morning. And I come to this sign. It looks something like this. When it's time to go, you better go. Now, granted, we're not exactly sure where we're going. It, it's pretty dark. But, but it, if, you, if you get to that sign, you better go. You know why? Because underneath that sign is this. I mean, you, you can't waffle about this decision. Uh, or it, it's going to be bad news. You're going to be buying four new tires. Just like that. When it's time to go, you go. But sometimes it's, it's hard to move through those doors with everything we have. Particularly if we put a lot of effort in the decision. Or if the decision was my responsibility. Or if the decision carries a high commitment. You see, key spiritual decisions in our life. High responsibility. High commitment. That also means that for many of us, that will involve buyer's remorse from time to time. And we see this, of course, in the Exodus event, in the very scripture that we read. These folks have been enslaved year after year after year, generation after generation after generation. And then, you know what they worry about? Of all the things they could worry about, they're worrying about what they're going to eat. Oh, we used to have this great fish in Egypt. Well, yeah. You remember you were slaves. You had no freedom. And they go, oh yeah, melons and leeks and onions and garlic. You see, people have short mem memories, don't we? Really short memories. It's real easy to begin to complain. And, and before we just, you know, start throwing the Israelites under the bus, it gets worse. Moses, the great leader, the one called by God, the one that was brought up in the Pharaoh's house, now he's having second thoughts about his decision to go through that leadership door. So Moses says to the Lord, oh God, why have you treated your servant so badly? I, I mean, really, Moses? I mean, that's, that's what he's going to say to God? Why have I not found favor in your sight that you lay the burden of all this people on me? Did I conceive of all this people? No. Did I give birth to them? No. That you should say to me, carry them in your bosom as a nurse carries a sucking child? I mean, Moses has had enough. When the people come to him and they complain, he complains to God. Where am I to get meat to give to all these people? And for they come weeping to say to me, give us meat to eat, Moses. I'm not able to carry all this people alone, God, for they're too heavy for me. If this is the way you're going to treat me, Put me to death at once. Just kill me now. Right? You, you ever felt like that? Just kill me now. Not another day. Not, not another day on that flight. Not another day in the office. Not a day with these people. Just kill me now. Now you'll notice that this is the same leader who just freed the entire people of Israel not too long ago. They're in going to the promised land in numbers. They're no longer in Egypt. You see, having second thoughts or buyer's remorse, friends, we need to get this right. It's not fatal. That's your blank there. It's not fatal. So if, you, if you're thinking, oh, you know, hey, I got some buyer's remorse, don't worry about it. It's not fatal, and it's not final. It doesn't have to be. But it is inevitable. If you're going to do something great, there are going to be these moments of doubts. They come to everyone. They even came to Jesus. Jesus says, Lord, let this pass. Let this cup pass from me. Jesus didn't want to go to the cross. He absolutely didn't want to do that. And then John Ortberg, in his excellent book, he, he writes these words, and I want to read them to you word for word because they really, they really bothered me. And, and so rather than just skipping over it, I, I, I want to see if it bothers you too. He writes this. He says, recognizing the angst of difficult decisions 
can help you avoid one of the worst over-spiritualized traps people fall into when faced with a daunting opportunity. Many people have said this. Maybe you've said it. I've said it a lot, and that's why it bothers me so much. Well, I, you know, I would, but I just don't feel a peace about it. I, I just don't have a peace about it. Do you see, it's, it's this excuse for fear or laziness. And in this scenario, we take the presence of this internal anxiety as a supernatural rationale for avoiding taking on a challenge rather than seeing for what it is. A simple sign of emotional immaturity. Now that's just wrong for hitting me in the gut like that. I mean, I can't tell you how many times. I mean, I just didn't like this. It all didn't sit well with me. Because when things really got tough, somebody wanted me to take this like really big leap. I'm just like, no, I don't have peace about that yet. I'm pretty sure Moses didn't have a peace about it. Abraham didn't have a peace about it leaving Ur. Really sure Jesus didn't have a peace about it going to the cross. Right? Mother Teresa didn't have a peace about it, you know, heading down to Calcutta, working with lepers. I don't know anybody doing anything great that has a peace about it. Now, there is a peace that passes all understanding when you're in the midst of it, but it's not constant, right? You don't have that all the time, always. Now, there's a difference between moving in angst too quickly or, or making hasty decisions. I'm not talking about that. But we also have to have a reality check. Are we being honest with ourselves or are we just looking for an out? And putting God's name on it. I have asked many of you many times. Let's pray about it. Let's take a wait. And let's see if we have peace. That's good advice. But I also needed to hear. John Ortberg's words to me. Which is you can also use that as a crutch. It can be both. It can go either way. And so he writes this. He says for example. Why don't you end that relationship. In which you're behaving like a needy. Desperate clinging vine. With a person who's just not that into you. Or another example, why don't you have an honest conversation with that person in your workplace or your family or your small group who is behaving badly and whom you are secretly judging and resenting? Or another example, why don't you get out of your rut by taking this trip or that class or volunteering in those areas? Those are all real things that you may or may not have a perfect peace about. And we say, well, I, I would, but I just don't have a peace about it. And then he writes this. If having peace about it were the ultimate criterion for going through open doors, nobody in the Bible would have done anything God ever asked. The sequence in the Bible is usually not calling a deep feeling of peace, a decision to obey in smooth sailing. You, you just don't see that. Not with Jesus, not with disciples, not with anybody. Instead, it's usually a great call, abject terror. Right? And, and then there can be the decision to obey and the peace of Christ can come, but you still have big problems, more terror, Second thoughts, repeat several times, deeper faith. And the deeper the faith, the more peace comes, the more often and the higher the frequency. But sometimes, friends, if you have perfect peace about everything in your life, it means you're not doing anything. Having second thoughts about going through a door is not unusual. And it's not an automatic sign that I've made the wrong choice. Israel fluctuated about how they felt about God all the time. And God's not a big fan of grumbling. Ever. In the Bible. And as a very poignant example that I don't want to lift up to anyone, he, he writes this. He says, never does the Bible command anyone, if you're having difficulty in your marriage, try managing it by spending a large number of hours speculating on what would have happened if you had, had married someone else. You know, vividly contrast the hypothetical strengths of your fictional spouse with the very high definition flaws of your actual one. See how that goes for you. It will end in disaster, friends. But there is a cure for buyer's remorse. There's a better way to go through the door, and that's with all your heart. We're not to be double-minded. 
or double-hearted. Love the spouse you have. Think of their strong characteristics. Love them. Love them. Well, how do we, how do, we do this? I'll never forget a sermon that my senior pastor at Highland Park, Mark Craig, told. He played uh, small college football. And, and as a part of some money-making deals for, some, uh, for the college, they played some really big schools every once in a while. And he said that they were uh, in the middle of a huge you know, beatdown at one of these really large schools that they, they were playing. And he said, I'll never forget it. They came in at halftime, and, and he just thought the coach was going to be all over him, just like, rah, 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 rah. And the coach looks at him dead serious, and he's like, boys, you're getting killed out there. It's the second game of the season. We've got a long way to go. Just don't get hurt. That's all I'm asking. Be smart. Don't get hurt. I don't care what the score is. These guys are bigger, stronger, faster, hit harder. You're outmanned. Don't get hurt. Live to fight another day. And he went on. He said it was the greatest, you know, coach speed he'd ever heard. And they got drummed. I mean, they didn't score another point. I don't think they met another, you know, yard on the field. It was debilitating, but it was, you know, just the way it was. And, and the thing is, you know, you, that's not what you expect. I mean, if you want to watch a sports movie, you don't want to watch that movie. Right? It's abysmal. We all want to, to have this thing where, you know, where you're going to go out and win and take the hill or whatever it is. And that just doesn't happen all the time. You know, I've never heard a groom say to a bride, with this ring, I thee wed. And I promise to be a devoted, faithful husband to you, you know, most of the time. That doesn't work. In fact, there's an old tradition, right? Uh, what happens when you first get married? When you walk into your house, you do what? You carry them over the threshold. You, you, you see, friends, that's supposed to be a beautiful metaphor about love and trust and dependability and care. That you're being carried over. It's wholehearted trust, wholehearted commitment. But sometimes people try to walk through high challenge doors with low level commitment. And the result is defeat. It's like, don't get hurt, guys. You never win like that. You, you might be safe like that, but you can never win in life like that. And so the thing is, the greater the door, the greater the call for wholeheartedness. You know, there are certain things you can do in your life. It doesn't take all your heart. It just takes a little bit. But there are other things. It takes everything you've got. The way to go through one of God's open doors is with all your heart. Absolutely, all of it. With all your heart. And that means saying no to some other things. So, for example, have you recently crossed the threshold of an open door in your life in any way? Well, how committed are you to it? Because ultimately, that's what you have to ask yourself. How committed are you to this thing? Now, ask yourself questions like this. Well, do I talk about this commitment to other people to create a kind of public accountability for my actions? If it's something I'm really into, then the answer is yes. If it's something I have doubts about, the answer is no. I hope nobody knows that I'm doing this because I kind of might want to quit in two weeks. That's how I feel about my workouts all the time. I, I never talk to people about my diets or my working out because I want to be able to quit whenever I want to. I don't want you people to know about that stuff at all. Do, do I own the responsibility to grow? Do I read books and practice skills and meet with those further down the road than me? And, and do I deal with discouragements by talking with God and asking for strength and perseverance? And do I recognize and celebrate even the small steps in the right direction, even tiny steps? Friends, if my feet are turned this way, I don't care how small the steps are, Ultimately, where am I going to end up? Over there. Not over there. It doesn't matter how big or small. If I keep those steps going, I'm going to end up over there. The thing that drives me crazy is half the time I try to walk like this. 
it wear you out. You can't get nowhere like that. Nowhere at all. Not at all. But am I the only one that walks like that? I'm like, I'm doing this. Well, maybe not. Right? I mean, throw your hips out. It's bad. So Paul says this to the early church. He's like, you can't live like that. You've got to set, set your eyes and go. He says, do not lag in what? Zeal. Be ardent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Well, friends, let me ask you. How's your zeal going? How's your zeal level? Do people look at you and go, that gal, she is sold out for, for this thing. That, that man over there, he is all in. I, I don't know when he's going to get there, but he's going to get there. Nobody doubts that. We know where he's going. So what are, what are Jesus' instructions on going through the door? One, we know we're supposed to be wholehearted. But, but look what Jesus says. It's beautiful. He goes first. In John 20, 21, he says, peace be with you. That's the first thing. He shows up in the room, right? I and mean, this, this is the Easter evening, right? He's raised from the dead. Jesus shows up. He says, peace be with you. And as the Father has sent me, so I what? Send you. He's not doing it for them. He's not enabling them. He's not even teaching them. He shows up Easter evening. Ta-da! So the Father sent me. I'm sending you. Get going. Can you imagine how hard that would be to receive? I mean, they just watched him die a few days ago. They, I mean, they're afraid out of their minds. And Jesus shows up with no, you know, no addendum to the instructions. Just, Father sent me, I send you. Good luck. He actually doesn't even say good luck. He just says, I send you. I send you. You see, when somebody is deeply committed with their whole heart, not out of guilt, not out of obligation, not out of pressure, but because they're convinced that this is worthy of their devotion, their full life, we love to be challenged about that. But when we're divided in our commitments, it's a mess. And you see, Jesus is emphasizing how his disciples are going to go rather than where. Rather than where. And so I want to I show you what Jesus says about how we go um, in Matthew 10, uh, 11. Hey, he says, um, whatever town or village you enter, find out who in it is worthy and stay there until you leave. So he's going to send them out in pairs. And, and where does he send them to? Whatever wherever now israel's a pretty big nation at that time there's lots of places they could go he doesn't tell them he says you guys go together and wherever you go and then he says something really bizarre he says and by the way this is how i'm gonna i'm gonna send you and he uses a number of um you know sort of metaphors he says i'm gonna send you out like what sheep does that sound like a good idea i'm gonna send you out like sheep not just i'm gonna send you out like sheep i'm gonna send you out like sheep how? In the midst of wolves. That's worse. So be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Now, have you all seen a sheep lately? It doesn't exactly engender confidence. I mean, let's take... I mean, seriously, this is how we go. I mean, <laughs> that's, that's how Jesus is sending us. You know, gnarly-haired sheep. Here I go. Here I go, in the midst of wolves. Now, I want you to think about your favorite sports team. Thunder, right? I mean, cowboys and Sooners. And, and you pick it, Tigers, Bears, right? Diamondbacks, Wolverines, Badgers, Sharks, Eagles, Hawks, Bulls, Panthers, Bengals, Raptors, Bobcats, Broncos, Grizzlies. No sheep, right? Rams, maybe. Sheep never. 
sheep. That's how Jesus sends us. See, I'm sending you as the Father sent me, like sheep. He doesn't stop there. Among wolves. So how do you do this? How does a sheep go among wolves? Very carefully is the answer, of course. Very humbly. The sheep doesn't go out and say, hey, wolves, back up. I'm here. I'm a sheep. It's a good way to get eaten. Right? I mean, that's, that's the end of the sheep. You know? You never tell the wolves, shape up, if you're a sheep. When you think about it, it, it does take some courage, doesn't it, for a sheep to be sent out among wolves. To be sent as a sheep means I don't lead with how smart or strong or impressive I am. That's not how sheep do it. But it's a funny thing. Doors get open to sheep that would never be open to wolves. It just doesn't happen. But if you've seen those people that in in your place of employment or or around your life, they're just solid. They're there. They're kind and smart. They're vulnerable in, in a wonderful, winsome way that draws you to them, doesn't repel you. It actually draws you closer. And if I go through the door with all my heart, I'm vulnerable to disappointment, aren't I? And failure because I've, I'm sold out. I'm all in. And the paradox of Jesus is that vulnerability is stronger than being a wolf. It is. With Jesus. Now, I can remember being a 7th grader. And one of the things about 7th graders is that they have almost no power at all. But they're, they're getting smarter all the time. They know things. And if you're not careful as a 7th or 8th grader, you can become a smart mouth in a hurry. Because you want to have power, but you just don't. And so you, you, you have this thing where if your parents ever say something that's a little off, if they stumble over a word, if they ever curse out loud, if they do something, you're quick to, to tell them like, ooh, mama said a bad word. Or, oh, well, you know, dad, technically that's not correct. It's really more like this, you know, it's, it's pronounced you know, whatever, noki, you know, that's a food, I'm told, right? But here's the thing. Every once in a while, I come across people who get stuck in that seventh grade complex. Rather than lifting other people up and encouraging them and and helping them through, they're always waiting to jump on somebody every time they make a mistake so they can look strong, so they can look smart, so they can look like they know what they're doing. But we all know that that's just to be stuck in seventh grade. All right. So listen to what Jesus does. He's not pointing out everybody's faults. He's telling them exactly the way it's going to be. Uh, many of you all know that I played high school football on a team that was not good. And um, we, I, I, I was at 160 pounds and I was on the front line. That tells you how bad things were. And so we would have these pep talks, you know, and, and we would try to encourage people. And, um, you know, they would always say things like, you know, go out there and just do your best. We're going to score. You know, go score. My coach would always say that. Every time they'd score on us, rather than beating us up, he'd go, all right, go score. Go score. I'm like, okay. Now, I want you to hear Jesus' great pep talk to his team. This is the way you find it in Matthew 10, uh, verses 17 through 22. He, he says, beware of them, for they're going to hand you over to the councils and flog you in their synagogues. And when they hand you over, don't worry about how you're to speak or what you're to say. Okay. He says, it gets worse. Brother will betray brother to death and the father's child and children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated. You're going to be hated by all because of me. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. Good luck. That's Jesus' pep talk. I mean, are you kidding? Go team. That's what they're supposed to go with. You see, there's always this temptation 
that we want to be wolves. We want to be Jesus wolves. We want to take some names in Jesus' name. It's always been a temptation in the church. It never works. One of our wisest church fathers, John Chrysostom, uh, reflecting on this, puts it like this. It's all the way back in the 300s and 400s. St. John said this, Let us then be ashamed who do the contrary, not sheep, who set like wolves upon our enemies. For so long as we are sheep, we conquer. But if we become wolves, we are worsted. For the help of our shepherd departs from us. For Jesus feeds not wolves, but, say it with me, sheep. Friends, we need the shepherd. We are desperate for the shepherd. We need the shepherd. We are nothing without the shepherd. Apart from me, you can do what? Nothing. He is the vine. We are the branches. Let us never, ever, ever be tempted to become the wolves. But Jesus doesn't expect us to be naive. He says, no, no, be sheep, but also wise as what? Serpents. Be wise as serpents, not a wolf. Go like a sheep, but also use everything that he's put in us. Be wise as serpents. I want you to be shrewd and clever as serpents. And I love that Jesus included this. So often people think of Jesus or Christians as naive or well-intentioned, you know, these sort of, you know, light-in-the-head people. And, and that's not at all what Jesus is calling us to do. Among other things, Jesus was really serious about getting the work of the kingdom done. If you look at Jesus, he's giving sight to the blind, deaf, hear, lame, walk. When something matters to you, you're careful about whose hands you put it into. And, and Jesus wants us to put the ministry into people's whose hands are wise and crafty. I mean, think about this. Think about how important it is about being in good hands. Um, John Ortberg writes about Murphy's Law. Somebody sent him this. You know, the Murphy's Law, if something can go wrong, it will go wrong. Uh, and then somebody added this to it. I want you to see. He says, when you go into court, remember, you're putting yourself in the hands of 12 people who weren't smart enough to get out of jury duty. You don't want to go to court, right? You need to stay out of court. And Jesus wants to put his movement into the hands of people who are realistic and serious about actually prevailing and being effective. It's important. You know what we look for around here in terms of leaders, and especially staff? We are looking for people who have two qualities, that they're smart and kind. Smart and kind. You know, I'll tell you, that is a hard combo to find. It really is. People who are smart enough to take advantage of others if they want to, but they never do. They're always working for the other. Kindness. And using all of it. Sheep and serpents both. You see, to be a change agent, friends, you need to know yourself and the world. We have a little chart that I want to show you. That, that you need to know yourself and the world. You need to be a sheep, and you also need to, to use all your smarts. And so, you see... Um, if you're self-aware, if you're not self-aware and you're not world-aware, you're going to be clueless. But if you're super world-aware, you know everything about the world, then you'll just become a, a chameleon. You'll just fit in wherever. And, and, if, and if you're super self-aware, you know everything about yourself, but you don't know anything about the world, you'll just become a hermit. And God doesn't call us to any of those, does he? God calls us to be a change agent, to be co-creators, for, for heaven to come to earth. We're to know about ourselves and also about the world, about the world. And, and you say, well, okay, well, how, am I, how do I know about myself? Well, it starts with what are your passions? What really fires you up? Hey, you, you need to know that about yourself. You need to take time to, to think about that. You need to ask, you know, wise, unbiased people. You know, what do you think? What, what do you see in me? What do you think 
that I'm really good at. And then you need to also look at your scars. You know, what pain in your life does God want to redeem? How is the world going to be better because of the pain you've been through? Most of the time, our best ministries are, are out of the pain we've experienced. How do you do that? And then also, we need partners. We need people to, to say to us, hey, you know, I think you'd be great at this. Or have you thought about that? You see, friends, God never wastes a hurt. Ever. God never wastes a hurt. We need partners. Jesus never sent out his disciples in isolation, not once. He sent them out in twos so they could go together. And Jesus wants us to have a world awareness, not just about ourselves and quite frankly, not just about our faith. He wants us to know about the world. He wants our faith to intersect with the world. And that takes some risk. We go out like sheep, but we go out as smart sheep. Sharp, clever, wise, crafty sheep, not looking to do harm, but making sure that we stay alive. And, and we move out in Jesus' name. You see, wise people become students of the world as well as the, themselves. And, and so one of the things that, that we can do is we can begin to experiment with what the doors that are that God's given us. And then finally, we come back to the scripture one more time. He says, see, I'm sending you out like what? Sheep in the midst of wolves to be wise as serpents and yet also as innocent as and doves, friends, are basically the bird equivalent of sheep. You know, peaceful, kind. You see, the main thing Jesus sends into the world is not what we do, it's who we are. It's not what we do, it's who we are. It's how we do it. And the thing is, friends, who you are lasts forever. That's your soul. That's what goes to heaven. Your character. God's way more concerned with that part of you that lives forever than any about any sort of temporary peace. God's really concerned about who you are, who you really are when no one's looking. What the world needs is not simply isolated outward deeds. That's fine. There's nothing wrong with that. But what God really cares about is a transformed character from within. It's not just that you do good stuff. It's that you want to do good stuff. That's what Jesus wants to release in the world. People who look like him. People who help him save the world. So, Again, friends, it's better to go through the wrong door with the right heart than the right door with the wrong heart. Jesus says, if you want to go through doors, do it like this. As the Father sent me, so I send you. I want you to go like sheep among wolves. And I want you to be shrewd and canny and clever and wise as serpents. But I want you to be as innocent as doves as well. And I want you to allow God to work on your character. Because the main thing you take into the world is not the stuff you do. It's who you are. It's not the stuff you do. It really is who you are are and it's better to go through the wrong door with the right heart than the right door with the wrong heart and so as a way to live this out friends i want to encourage you as your action step to run a time limited those are your last blanks there a time limited experiment and monitor the outcomes just just ask jesus what do you want me to do what do you want me to do and then go with all that you are your whole heart and see how it goes talk to your partners about your scars and your passions and how that goes and with all your heart let jesus carry you over the threshold amen